Well, good morning. This is like a homecoming to me. That was almost 20 years ago that I first attended Countryside. And um, it has been a wonderful experience. And um, I just am so appreciative of the elders that serve us here. Dwight was one of the first ones that we met together for quite a while and helped me get oriented to Countryside. And it's been a blessing ever since. And so I consider you all a blessing as well to be able to serve you in this way. <clears throat> and uh, so this morning, I want to remind us, for example, that um, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, he said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, history is full of examples of the importance of unity. It's in politics and policy, in war, in products, and in everyday life. And even in the founding of our own nation, it was Benjamin Franklin who said during the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall hang separately. There is power in unity. It is important to withstand a foe or to stand against error or to stand for a cause. Unity among the band will certainly have a major impact on the outcome of that cause. As a, by way of illustration, from their home in Mesopotamia, the Sumerians became one of the first superpowers of the world. Their empire gradually expanded far beyond the Mediterranean Sea. Their cities included Ur, the home of Abraham, and throughout their history, they successfully defended their empire from invading raiders and from rebellions within their borders. And for decades, they held the position of dominance until they didn't. It was a lack of unity that led to their decline. Fighting amongst themselves, the Sumerians quickly faded as a world power. Now at the core of any disunity, you will always find some form of human selfishness, some ego, or some pride, but nowhere is it more egregious when it is found in the body of Christ. As a people, we are called according to the perfect unity within the Godhead, indwelt with one spirit, under one Lord, under one faith, one baptism, and one hope, and we are commissioned to be the Lord's witnesses until he comes again here on earth. And any division amongst his people tarnishes that witness and dishonors the Lord. Now, by way of brief review, in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing many shortcomings of the church, areas within the church that needed to be corrected. In just a few years since it was founded, it had become an utter mess. Selfishness, divisive quarrels, all manifested within the body. The church had become divided on so many issues that its impact around the world had become severely curtailed. But before Paul dove into the corrective nature of this letter, as you recall from last week, he first reminded the church in the first nine verses that we studied that his grace has been already given to us and that we are able to gain, sustain, and enjoy our calling in Christ. And because of our calling in his name, believers are to live holy. As Christians, we are called to be like Christ. Therefore, holiness is not an option. It's our destiny. While we remain here on this earth, we work out our sanctification with the Holy Spirit in Philippians 2.13, and everything we do now reflects upon our Lord. In Paul's introduction, he has already given us some hints as to some of the issues that are coming, even though he's giving it in a, a, 
an exhortation of praise in what God has given for us. In verse 5, for example, he's given us the speech and the knowledge that we need. In our, verse 6, he's given us our testimony of being in Christ. And in verse 7, he's already talked about spiritual gifts and the revelation of the Lord. These are issues that are in the church and are coming up. So he is prefacing all that, even with his, his praise of what God has already done. Now, at the core of our calling is that we have fellowship with his son. Fellowship is not possible when there is disunity. And Paul's point is that having been purchased, we are to behave accordingly and to live up to our calling. Let's open our books together, our Bibles together, into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's read verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Paul was not divided, or excuse me, I lost my place. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we thank you for your holy written word that is sufficient for every need that we have. And even though these things come through the words of men, they were men chosen by you as your spokesman. Father, we pray that we now have ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to instruct us today. Amen. <clears throat> Now, the theme of this passage is that Christian congregations are to be unified in mind and opinion to maintain the priority and impact of preaching the gospel. Now, within this context of this letter, the church is being exhorted to restore that unity. Paul established the church just a few years before this letter was written, and then we are to preserve that unity as a local body. But how are believers to restore and preserve the unity as a congregation? Well, there's four points that we're going to be covering. First of all, to restore and preserve unity, we can do that by recognizing why congregational unity is so important. As you, have, you should have at your table handouts. Um, first of all, we can see this by the size of the letter. 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters in it. And all of them are rebuking the Corinthian church. Secondly, we can observe the tone of the letter. Let's look at verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word exhort here is also translated beseech in other translations. It's from the same word that we get the comforter of the Holy Spirit, the parakleo. Uh, it's to come alongside Paul here is making an appeal. He's also calling them brethren, which is a sense of love. Paul isn't trying to give them a beating. Rather, he's trying to give them a new bearing. 
And instead of appealing to his own authority as an apostle, Paul cites the highest possible authority in this matter through the use of in the name of our Lord, which is the focus on Christ. Now, what this means, of course, to be in the name of the Lord is not just some post that we put on a prayer or write on some, some little card. It's about being in total harmony with who Christ is, his word, the spirit, and his will. Paul is saying that what he's about to share is in keeping with repentance and desires, uh, rep, excuse me, re, reputation and the desire of the Lord himself. This isn't something Paul made up. It's something that's inherent in who Christ is and what he is doing for his church. Paul's desire is the church be restored, not banished, for the Lord's sake and for his honor. The third observation that we have here is the order inside the letter. There are 10 key issues that will be addressed here in this letter alone. He's going to start with the unity, which is on a passage today of all the schisms that are going on because this is central and core to all the rest of the problems in the church. He'll be followed by servanthood, morality, issues in marriage, Christian liberty, men and women in the church, the Lord's table, spiritual gifts, the resurrection, and money. I don't know what other topics he left out, but that was that's quite a quite a group, right? The other thing that we can observe here is from the affirmation of other scriptures. James tells us that there's a roadmap that leads to division in chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is saying here, this is what really is the root of all of your quarrels. It's your own selfish desires, your jealousies, and your lust. Paul goes on to tell us uh, in uh, Romans 16, 7, that we are to stand guard against any dissensions. Starting in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in, that, in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And Jesus also prayed for us to have the same unity as the Godhead itself. You may recall from John 17, 22 through 23, the Lord's highest desire for his people. He said, the glory which I have given, which you have given me, he's praying to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are. I in them and you and me that we may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I have loved you. 
I can't imagine of any higher calling, any higher purpose than to be in the graces of the Lord's Prayer that we be one as the Godhead is itself. This is where we find true fellowship. It has to be in unity, not disunity. Unity in the church is a priority of God's and therefore it must be a priority in the local church. This unity is the basis of our relationship with Christ and all that we are to be and we're no longer part of the world, right? Or its ways. Everything we do as believers reflects now upon Christ. It's also crucial to our joy as believers and the power as we've already seen in these verses of sharing the gospel. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, 46 and 47, we read that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Is there any question that, of the importance of unity? Scripture makes this pretty clear. And it's because it's the first thing in the letter and it sets the tone for the entire letter, we should take careful heed. Now as we read to the next part of the verse 10, we can also restore and preserve unity by recognizing what destroys congregational unity. Now as we read, he wants the people that they all agree and that there is no divisions among them. Now, to say we all want to agree, that's fine, but what he's really pointing out here is that you don't. You're not agreeing, and there are divisions among you. The word agree here means literally have the same words, so things are being verbally spoken out in disagreement. It's causing disharmony. They weren't in agreement, and they were expressing it outwardly. The word divisions comes from the word schemata, which we would understand from our English language, schisms. Now, it can mean two things. In Matthew 9, it can mean like to physically rip a, doc, a, a, a document or rip clothing. Uh, you can schismata, you rip it apart. But metamorphically, it means to split in meaning or opinion. So in this context, having different opinions was also part of the problem. Both are in the present tense, and thus they are ongoing, constantly happening. This doesn't have a time beginning and an end. It's just something that's continuing to happen. Paul is saying that no murmuring is allowed. No sharing of dissenting opinions with others is in a way to leave questions or factions. You know, we, ask, we need to ask ourselves when we're raising questions in the church especially, are we asking simply because we have a sincere desire to learn? Or are we asking questions so as to manipulate or to cause an agenda or a narrative to go out and go forward. Heaven forbid we out, outright protest. Paul's saying we can't have this. If we do genuinely have a, a differing opinion, then we're to take it up the chain of leadership. And the Bible tells us that we have these people in charge and that's what we're going to talk about in a moment. So how did the Corinthians differing in opinions and words manifest themselves? Well, from 11 through 13, we read, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't know who Chloe was. She's the only time that this name appears, he or she. We don't even know that. Um, 
Likely it was a believer that had traveled to where Paul was, and it was likely someone that Paul already knew, somebody perhaps that was in the church when he was there, when he established it, and thus he also knew of this person's faithfulness. Well, this Chloe brings the, the matter of these quarrels, these visible factions that are within the church. And what were some of these? Verse 12, Paul points some of them out. He'll go through the letter and the rest of them, but here's the ones he starts with. That each of you are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I have of Christ. Perhaps they were focusing on various excellencies, gifts, ministries, or attainments of each of these leaders. Perhaps they were just having their favorite pastor. In a way, they were saying, my pastor is better than your pastor. And, oh, but no, mine is better than yours. Because, and then some credential, right? So who was Paul? Well, he was the first pastor. He was the one that founded the church. Doesn't that sound pious? But, oh, he's, he's my guy. He was the one that really started things. He actually heard Jesus speak on the road to Damascus, or I was saved under Paul's preaching. He had such a great conversion story, didn't he? Oh, that's just awesome. He's my man. Or who was Apollos? Anybody remember him? He had to be corrected in some of his doctrine at one point, but he also became the second pastor of the Corinthian church. He was a more polished speaker than Paul. Oh, I like Apollos. He speaks more eloquently, you know, whatever that might be. Who was Cephas? Well, we know who Peter was. Perhaps some Jews came over to Corinth from Jerusalem. They were perhaps under the teaching of Peter. And oh, what does Peter have to acclaim? Well, he was one of the 12. Or, wow, he was even the spokesman of the 12. Or, he was the bold one in faith and loyalty. He was the one who exhibited such a great turning from himself to Christ. After all, he, he uh, denied the Lord, and here he is, this powerful speaker, giving these sermons. He also saw the empty tomb firsthand. Oh, I want somebody that's been there, right? Paulus wasn't there. Paul wasn't there. But Peter was at the tomb. And who was Christ? Well, this sounds more pious than the rest, and it's obviously where everybody should end up, but not as a clique. He was the one who actually provided the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that we now live for. And Paul never rebukes anything to do here with saying you are of Christ. In fact, he commends it. But he's trying to point out here that making these factions is not the way to go even if you use the name of Christ. Now, we all may have notable teachers. We have our favorite pastors. We have our favorite ministers. We have people that have had a big influence in our life. But you know what? They're just a fellow servant, aren't they? They're fulfilling their role, and we'll get to some more of that here in a moment. Paul then brings us back in verse 13 to the main idea. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The obvious answer to these, of course, is that no, Christ isn't divided. You are. No, Paul is, wasn't crucified. Jesus was. No, you were, you were baptized into Christ, not any of your pastors. By focusing on men and men's credentials, the church are missing the point, aren't they? They have forgotten that we are all servants in the same boat with the same destiny. Some row, some steer, some serve. 
The various pastors they were clinging to were just fulfilling their roles in the Lord's mission. Now, recognizing why congregational congregational unity is so important and recognizing what destroys it, believers can also uh, recognize what builds congregational unity. First of all, by going back to verse 10, the second part of 10, Paul is exhorting the church to turn and be uh, made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the word made complete is karatidzo, which means to actually stitch together. He's asking them to put things back together. He's saying you are to have the same mind, and that means the same inner moral attitude and have the same judgment, which is a determination to have that same mind, same reasoning, same thinking, same opinions. To willfully decide to be in the same focus of what Christ's life is all about. The Lord's calling and his redemption to know him and become like him, which in turn means to submit to his purposes. So how do we achieve this kind of unity? I mean, are we all supposed to be, you know, little lemmings that follow each other and just say, yes, 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 yes. I remember a famous commercial in 1984. Anybody remember that? Anybody old enough for that? <laughs> it was quite the mockery, but it was showing the competition as being just following everybody off the cliff, right? No, that's not what we're called to do. There are plenty of instances in Scripture where we are to stand our ground. We've already read one of them. You know, we're to be standing against dissensions and divisions. We're not supposed to just agree with everybody because we like them or because of what position they hold. But Paul is telling us there's some things that are really important here. We're, we're supposed to, first of all, tear down false doctrines. We're to tear down vain philosophies in Colossians 2. And we're supposed to beware of wolves even within our own church, Acts chapter 20. So how do we get in alignment with this unity that Paul is asking for us? First of all, it's my adopting a practice of humility. I'm going to continue to read from James 4 where we left off because James gives us part of that answer. He says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So even to James, there's this importance of making sure that we are humbled first. Without humility, there's nothing more than becoming another division in the making. Any pride that is running around in the church or expressing itself in a proudful way or I'm right and you need to listen to me is just another faction in the making. And humility, of course, is taught throughout all of Scripture. It's the core of even coming to faith in the first place. You don't come to faith by being proud. You come because you are broken. Having a teachable spirit is the natural outcome of humility. So we need to begin with humility, first of all, maybe even acknowledging that we're part of a problem and we need to fix that. We need to take some action 
We need to first humble ourselves and submit ourselves before the Holy Spirit to have that examination of our heart to make sure that we are not part of the problem. Yes, we're going to see that there are problems. Everybody has differences of opinion, but it's how we deal with them that is so important. And what is it that we're making a difference about? The second, next thing is that we are to commit ourselves to the essential doctrines. You know, it's interesting that in Romans, as Paul, excuse me, as Tom has taught us, there's a whole chapter there on and just being deferent to one another. We're not going to have 100% agreement in everything. But there are core things we must in order to protect the body of Christ and to protect the gospel message. You know, and some of those things, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, but salvation by faith alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone, the divinity of Christ, the full divinity of Christ, the full humanity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. All those things are really core doctrines, and there's more, but we need to be centered on those things and in total agreement. Now, as we come to faith, of course, we're not always going to instantly understand those things. And so we do need to grow, but we have to trust the leadership. And we'll get into some of that in a moment as well. We're all growing in grace. We're all growing in the faith. We're all growing in the word. But when you come to a local body and, and decide to be a part of it, to join that, you're also saying, I'm willing to trust that leadership because of how they're selected and what their purpose is and what their calling is and because that is their role in the church and to get behind that leadership. But back to the core doctrines here. In Philippians 3.16, I'll start from reading in verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect and remain complete, have this attitude. And if anything, if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which you have, been, you have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and other, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they were enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. We're going to have differences of opinion about what we like in this world, but they need to be secondary. They need to be non-argumentative issues. They're not worth picking a fight over. And we need to make sure that we're not stirring up contention. Now here's where we get to, uh, I'm going to just spend a moment talking about the leadership requirements here. Now, Paul gives us clear instruction throughout the scripture, especially in the book of Timothy, of how the local body is to be constructed in its leadership. And so one of the things we need to do as a body of Christ is to make sure that we trust that board of elders, a plurality of elders, mind you. Uh, we are uh, to make sure that we are uh, working with them, not against them. They meet and seek to serve the Lord in all that they're doing. They are called of the same spirit. They are men that have proven themselves to be faithful. They have a a desire to be teachers. They have a desire to be conformed to the work of Christ in everything that they do. Are they perfect? No. <laughs> are they exalted into heaven already? I mean, if they, no. Uh, they are men like you and I, and they still are growing in Christ, but they have a track record and they have a reputation, and we are to give them that benefit of the doubt and trust them 
before we have dissensions. Now in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, we read, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Don't make their work harder. Hebrews 13, 7, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let him... Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Okay, a little bit of a warning, okay? We're, we're not going to have perfect agreement in the sense that everybody is, you know, 100%. That'll all happen in heaven, right? That's coming. In the meantime, we're on this earth and we're all growing in the grace to become in the likeness of Jesus Christ. But God has positioned men to be in a position to be his representatives in, in the leadership of the church and we are to follow them and trust them. And if we do have a dispute, we can go to them. But we go to them privately. We say, and you go there with humility and you say, help me understand, I'm having an issue with this. And you take time to pray together. You study the word together. And then you also, if you still don't come to that, you still agree as a local member of the church that you will defer to their leadership. Now, if you're in a liberal church or something like that, you need to just get out of it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> or if you're in one that's too controlling and it's just overreaching on what Scripture is. I was in a church before I came here where there was a particular doctrine which is not one of the core doctrines. And... It was basically saying that if, if you and your family don't 100% agree with this, then you can't be a member. I said, okay. That was easy to fix. Um, but as a member, I couldn't serve in the way that the Lord had given me my own gifts to serve. And my family couldn't be a member. And I basically lovingly went to that pastor and I said, According to what you're saying here, we can't be, my family can't be a member, but yet they're believers. I said, where, does, where, can, where in Scripture does it say that someone has to believe a certain doctrine before they can be a member of the church when in fact they're already a member of the church because of their faith and commitment in Christ on those core doctrines? Well, that was a showstopper. Afterwards, after we left, they changed the name of the church and actually changed some of their ways. But it was done, I believe, in a respectful way. We prayed together, we hugged together, we blessings to each other, and we went on our ways. And each had to serve the Lord where we were being led to go. But that's the way I believe it needs to be done. That's the example that had been given to me. There are going to be differences, but go to the leadership and try to resolve it quietly, peaceably and not make it unprofitable for you, as Hebrews says. Now, I know here in our church, I, although I'm not an elder, I know that they look, in, um, and Dwight could correct me if I'm wrong, but there needs to be a unanimous agreement in what the church is doing and what they decide. And if there isn't, they take more time to dig into it and hear each other's concerns, their study of Scripture. But they submit themselves to the Scripture and to the Spirit and that's why you see unity in this church. Likewise, members of the congregation are then to do the same. 
We all have the indwelling spirit, and we have access to the word of God. We have access to the Lord in prayer. And so we are to work through our, our leadership to arrive at unity. He's, for the, some reason, the Lord has chosen to work through his redeemed believers and mere mortals, right? But he, his power is great enough to make that work. First Timothy 3.15, I write to you that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We all have an important role right here, and that's to uphold the spirit of the truth of God's word, and our being in disunity will never accomplish that. Next, whenever Paul writes about unity, it always expects believers to embrace a one-body mindset. Now, a mindset where each member is a small part of a larger body with one mission. I like to use the analogy that, you know, in my body there are trillions of cells, but they all serve one purpose. We all move at the same time, hopefully, you know. <laughs> it, that's the way this works together. And as members of the body of Christ, you are but one little cell. Some of them are brain cells, some of them are toes, some of them are fingers, some of them help with the food, you know, some eyesight, whatever. Everybody is serving a purpose, and there's to be this one body. And let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is coming up, and I'm just going to skip through some of the verses in here because we'll be studying this later. But in 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12, Paul so eloquently explains this. He says, for even as the body is one and yet as many members and all the members of the body through, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit you were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. He goes on about using the illustration of a foot and the and the body. In verse 18, he picks up, but now God has placed the members, each of them in the body, just as he has desired. You have a place. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. Skipping down to the second part of 24, but God has so composed the body, given more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no divisions in the body but that all members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now as a whole then, the local body is to restore and preserve unity as a congregation by also recognizing the priority of the preaching of the gospel towards making disciples. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, this calling to preach is rooted in the Great Commission. Before any of the apostles founded any churches outside of Jerusalem, the Lord commissioned them in Matthew 28:19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now you start making disciples by first preaching the gospel. Once converted, then the true discipleship 
can begin. Paul wrote in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Romans 10, 14, how will they believe in him when they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good the tidings of good, uh, good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, not every believer is an apostle. Not every believer is a preacher. The rest of us are in support missions for that purpose, and we help make the whole of the body accomplish the mission of our Lord. But as we also read in 1 Corinthians 12, delivering the gospel then relies upon the teamwork of the local church. Paul drives this home by highlighting how he has a role and is not baptizing new believers. Verse 14, I'm skipping back around in 1 Corinthians 10, or chapter 1 here. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius and that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. Paul's driving this point home. We each have a role. We each have a purpose. We have a place to serve, and we're to do so in unity. Paul is basically saying it's not who you are baptized by, but who you are baptized into. And we need to keep the focus on the real end. Now, Ephesians 4 describes the desired teamwork best. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I'm glad it was in Scripture. It couldn't have been better said, in my opinion. It's just so clear. Well, let's go on to some applications here. First of all, the unity in the local church is to be a priority of all believers. And that whether you're changing churches or visiting churches, the principles still apply. You're not to go to a church to cause up new dissensions. You need to address them where you're at, take care of them. Etc. But that needs to be a priority in all of our lives. Number two is that unity in the local church affects the effectiveness of its impact in the community, and we need to keep this in mind. You know, we can't have these little dissensions that destroy the, the impact of the entire church. One little division can make a big mess out of the entire impact of what the church can do in its community. Number three. Unity in the local church requires everyone's humility and submission to the word, the spirit, and its leadership. Differences are to be handled in a discreet manner through that leadership. And fourth, 
Unity in the local church requires everyone's focus on the higher cause of Christ. And this is what needs to be kept in mind. I love that passage that says we are looking to the author and the finisher of our faith in Hebrews. That's where we need to keep that focus. It's not on us. It's not on my pastor. It's, you know, we pray for everybody. We pray for our pastor. We continue to learn the word. But we're always looking to the author and the finisher of our faith, growing into that likeness of Christ. And finally... As an exhortation, as a challenge, perhaps there's someone that you need to go back to and acknowledge the wrong way that something was done or the wrong motive in which you did it and how you might have expressed disunity. It needs to be nipped in the bud. Don't let it fester. Don't let it continue. Don't let it grow into their new cause because you gave them some wrong information or a wrong manner in how to deal with something. Go back to them. Do the one-on-one as we would do anytime we reprimand somebody in the church. We do one-on-one first and then we take two or three witnesses and then, you know, the point here is take personal responsibility for anything that you might be doing or have done that might be causing disunity. Let me close then by reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we're going to see this grace throughout the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is lovingly trying to bring things back together. He's trying to restore it. And so our job is to also be a part of that process to restore what needs to be, what has been broken, and to keep that unity at whatever cost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter that you've given us, even though it reveals a lot of heartache and a lot of issues and grief that Paul himself must have been feeling having planted a church and so quickly it became a mess. And Lord, this is just a reminder to us how delicate and how important it is that we maintain unity. Thank you for the one spirit that guides us all. May we in all submission to your spirit be drawn to Christ as our chief Lord and our mission and our purpose and that we get behind that together so that your gospel would not be compromised and that your word and your ministry would be fulfilled. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.